Welcome to Famous Lost Words, and not just Famous Lost Words as usual, but a very, very special edition. Tom, can you believe that we got to number 100? Absolutely. And on the previous 99 episodes, Christopher, you introduced yourself and you introduced me. So why don't we try that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, golly. (laughs) He said going into Eeyore voice. Okay. I'm Christopher Ward, and he's Tom Jokic. That's right. (laughs) This is so much fun. I'm so excited about this episode. First of all, the fact that we have a 100th episode is something of a miracle. We started this show in January of 2018. It is such a pleasure to do this show on a weekly or bi-weekly basis and to bring these classic interviews from the archives and we listen to them and then we play the best parts for you, the listener, and we've been doing it for 99 episodes. And on this episode, we've got something really special going on, and that is our very favorite stories from the previous 99 episodes. And so... You know, whether it's the classic Robert Plant story, Christopher, that you've told before, which is my favorite story of all of the ones that we've ever done. (laughs) Thank you. Or the story from Ed Robertson from Bare Naked Ladies telling us about the cheapest video that ever landed on much music. There are so many great stories. classic tale. Absolutely. And some that you've never heard before because one or two have been recorded or found for this specific episode. So before we get started with some of our favorite stories, if you could only listen to the music of one decade for the rest of your (laughs) life, (laughs) Uh which Hmm. decade, I already know the decade you are going to choose, but you can't listen to music from any other decade. So, One decade, rest of your life, which decade do you choose? Go ahead, Christopher. Well, it has to be the 60s, baby. You know it. Um, You know, my theory is that most people spend their entire lives listening to the music of one decade. So it's not really a stretch for most to identify what what that time frame is. Yeah. Um, But I I really started thinking about this in in a broader sense because, well, of course it's the 60s, but why? What is it about the music of that era or a favorite band or something like that? And somebody said something to me interesting. Um, a friend whose wife is is about 15 years younger than him said, talking about the Eagles and her love of that band, said, right. well, you know, the Eagles were her Beatles. Wow. And I thought, oh, oh, okay. I mean, I sort of understood that. And then I was shortly thereafter, I was listening to uh, my local NPR station here and the host I was talking about LCD Sound System who had new music coming out. He was very excited because yeah, yeah. LCD Sound System were his Beatles. Oh, as he dear put it. Lord. Like, I like yeah. I like LCD Sound System and I love the Eagles, but to me, that just sounds sad. <laughs> but here, here's the question. Are we talking about music anymore? Right. Is it sort of an avatar for a time in your list? Are we talking about the soundtrack of your coming of age, right? Because you yes. can't assign value to songs and say, oh, you know, a song from the Beatles is better than a song from Kiss. Well, no, <laughs> never mind. Um, 
And there's this kind of glow around the music that we loved. We forgive Maxwell Silverhammer because we love Day in the Life. That's exactly I'm right. sure that my friend's wife forgives the Greeks don't want no freaks because she's listening to Desperado, right? <laughs> so what was it? So for me, if, if I was going to focus on the Beatles, it's it was long hair. It was, which was forbidden. It was new fashion boots with Cuban heels that my parents wouldn't buy for me. Right. Later, you know, experimenting with drugs, curiosity about new cultures, all sorts of things. Yeah. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Yes. Well, I think in your case, it is. I think you're talking about almost the cultural revolution and the soundtrack to that revolution. My choice is not the 60s, it's the 70s. And I don't think culturally... It's as relevant, but musically, I just love it. And I do believe that the, you know, I do believe right. in the rather ordinary theory that the music that you listen to kind of when you first chose your own music, like truly chose your own music and it wasn't kids' music anymore, is probably around right. the time. I always thought it was around the time of, you know, 13 years old, 14 years old. I think perhaps that it's even a little bit earlier than that. Yeah. With younger generations. But I turned. 13 and 1975. And so everything that kind of came after that was new and was new to me, of course. Like if I had to choose just one, it would have to be the 70s because Mm. it has Joni Mitchell, Bruce Springsteen, The Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, Kiss, the first albums by The Cars, Boston, Van Halen. You've got Crime of the Century. You've got 70s Paul Simon. You've got Rush. You've got Carly Simon. You've got early police albums. You've got The Clash. But then I go, oh, no. There's no Purple Rain. There's no Joshua Tree. There's no 80s era Peter Gabriel or Kate Bush or <laughs> Wait the Wait a minute. Hold the phone right? there, buddy. <laughs> you can't have any of that. Like, And you can't have later stuff that I just love, like Arcade Fire, Billie Eilish, the Arkells, Drake, or Adele. Like, or, There's so many more, like all the songs that I wouldn't be able to hear. But if I have to choose a 10-year period of time... I don't know. It's the 70s, and it's not even close in a way. And does it matter if this is music that will last? No, because it's, no, because it's my choice. And so it, the fact that I'm still listening to it, like 40 to 50 years later, it already has lasted. Okay, I, yeah. I made a quick list of, of, song, of stuff from the 60s. Okay. Pet Sounds, yeah. Revolver, yeah. and Sgt. Pepper, a little sidetrack there. Highway 61, mm-hmm. Astral Weeks, mm-hmm. Are You Experienced? Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. Tommy, music from Big Pink, Cheap Thrills, Dusty in Memphis, Beggar's Banquet, Crosby, Stills, Nash, The Songs of Leonard Cohen, The Band, I Never Loved a Man, and Clouds. How's that? Wow. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. And to top it off, this is an era when I started to get interested in listening to jazz music, too, later on in the 60s. And and artists like Bill Evans and Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Stan Getz with Astro Gilberto, they were making some music that is just absolutely timeless, all in the same era. Absolutely. And you know, it's hard for me to give up the 60s, if only because I listen to Abbey Road at least once a week. And so I would have to give up my favorite (laughs) album of all time. It is a tough decision to make, but that was the point of this. We made it. We had to make it. That's right. (laughs) Well, you know the deal on Famous Lost Words. We find classic interviews in the archives and play the best parts for you. Tom, how about the stories that you have gathered for this week's episode? It's going to be so much fun, Christopher. So let's get started with some of our favorite moments. (laughs) 
From 1985, one of the biggest hits from that year, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Tears for Fears. Tom, this is so silly and so charming and is one of my favorite famous lost words stories. <laughs> Here's Roland Orzabal of Tears for Fears and his wonderful tale of an encounter with someone more famous than himself. You brought back Alita Adams for a guest appearance on this That's one. That's true, yeah. And also I saw in here, and it's intriguing, Barbara and Ringo, next time bring your own tea bag I saw in there. Now, is that the Barbara and Ringo that we're all thinking of? It is, actually, because um, we wrote most of these songs in uh, the south of France. We rented a villa right on the Mediterranean. Ooh. And uh, one of the luxuries of... <laughs> Again, of being <laughs> this, in this industry. Being in this industry, yeah. And it was, a, you know, very you know very old. I mean, the, the person who owned the place was you know, quite old and it was very antiques. And we had to... Tiled floors. And we had to sort of strip this room of its antiques and brought in loads of uh, keyboards and guitars and and we started writing and uh, this agent kept sort of ringing me up and saying we need to bring somebody round um, to, to, because we need to sell the house for, for August. Now this place is a lot of money and August, to, to rent for August is thousands of pounds, thousands tens of thousands of for pounds for one month. Yeah, for one month and so she, she rang up and as usual I stopped work, sat outside and waited for these people to turn up to see what kind of millionaire is going to move in for August and so uh, this guy comes in and he's got like this beard and he's got these shades on and this big nose and <laughs> wait a minute and I go oh my god it's Ringo <laughs> and he was with um, a very tall Londoner called Hillary and so I'm like Hillary sat chat chatting to me while Ringo's going around and he just starts cracking all these jokes he goes it's very private here I said, oh, yeah. He goes, I see a lot of boats in the bay. I said, yeah. He goes, they're not journalists, are they? I said, no. They, say, they leave you alone. I said, yeah, they leave me alone. He goes, they'd be bothering me a lot more if, if it wasn't for that Paul McCartney. <laughs> so he's, he's going on all about this stuff. And I'm like, I'm going, my God, it's Ringo. And while, all the time we were doing secrets, writing secrets at the time, and it's got this Ringo drum fill, and I think, I hope he doesn't want me to play him anything because he'll hear himself. And uh, so then, he, just as he's leaving, he goes, thanks for the cup of tea, because I hadn't offered him anything, because I was just, like, nervous. And he goes, I brought my own tea bag. <laughs> and, um, which he hadn't, he was joking. And, uh, and then the next time he came round, he came round, he brought his wife, Barbara. And uh, they all sat down. We gave them a cup of cup of tea. But you see, he's off stimulants. Oh, and we gave him some, we gave him some uh, Earl Grey. And he said, he, "I'll be buzzing all the way back to Monte Carlo." <laughs> you know, it's, it's, so you had tea with Ringo Starr. Had tea with Ringo. Yeah. But you, it's it's amazing to sit here and see somebody who's you know reached your level of success, and yet you're still in awe when somebody of Ringo oh, yeah. stature comes in. Absolutely. It really puts you back, it almost puts you back in our camp, really. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's kind of a nice little thing. But he's a, a great guy. He's fantastic. Oh, man. That really is one of the best. And in fact, Christopher, it was that story that inspired this week's episode. No doubt. When we played it, I just went, you know, that is so good. And we have so many other great stories. Let's do something special. And let's make it our 100th episode. And that's what this is. Our favorite stories from the history of the show, plus a few brand new ones, including this next one right here, which is about the same Beatle as the previous one was about. <laughs> Tom, Ronnie Bachman is our country's chronicler in chief, <laughs> and he has no shortage of tales to tell. This one 
is about meeting two different Ringos. How did it feel for you the first time? Like, I guess you'd met Ringo in previous situations. I met him in the seventies, but he doesn't remember it. It was his. It was his drunk years. We him got and Harry Nilsson yeah. and Alice Cooper. It was, that, it was the mid seventies, and it was a flight from Vancouver to, uh, from L.A. to Vancouver. I got on the plane. I just mixed BTO four. Mm-hmm. I was number one. The Not Fragile album, Ain't Seen Anything Yet, was number one, and I'd mixed the next album. We we're going back on the road, right. and I got on the plane. I'm sitting on one side of first class, and right opposite me, row one, Ringo Starr. And I want to talk to this guy, but he's tipping. He's drinking like mad. Free booze in first class. And halfway through the flight, we hear this voice, may I have your autograph, sir? And I look around to see who's getting Ringo's autograph, and someone hands the paper to me. Oh. Because, like, I was the number one band, right, yeah. at the song at the time. Yeah. I sign it, and I figure they're going to go to Ringo. It's a young kid. Turns around and goes back and doesn't ask Ringo for his autograph. <laughs> Has no idea who Ringo Starr is, right? And ask for my autograph. And as I'm getting off the plane, I'm standing behind Ringo, and he turns around, and he says, who in the, are you? You know, who in the blank? And I told him who I was and shook hands, and I was pleased to meet him. He was going right to Mushroom Studio to record. And I told him this on tour. He doesn't remember. He said, I don't remember 1973 to 1979. I do not remember. David Bowie doesn't remember those years. Harry Nilsson doesn't remember those years. Those were the blotto years, the mm-hmm. missing years. Now he's been straight seven or eight years, and like I said, he talks about what vitamins to take, and he's a very healthy guy. He's given up drinking and smoking and, and drugs. And it was a very straight tour being with him all summer, but it was very amazing playing with him and hearing stories of the Beatles and hearing, I mean, you're a Beatle fan. I'm a Beatle fan. Mm-hmm. I got a collection of stuff. He was very kind. He autographed lots of stuff for me. And Come on now. That's not what you told me. He autographed a Well, the first day, I brought like 80 <laughs> things. I got the Help Songbook, right? Signed by all the Beatles. The Help Songbook? Yes. The, the president of the Beatles fan club in L.A. was getting divorced. Uh-huh. And I had just gone through a divorce, which was in the paper at the time. This is the late oh. 70s. And uh-huh. I get a call from this guy saying, they're going to come and get all my stuff. And it's all. The, I was a president of the Beatles fan club from 1963 to 1969. And my name is Mark so-and-so. I've got all this stuff. Do you want it? I'll sell it to you real cheap because if the lawyer, divorce lawyers get it, I'm not going to get nothing. I said, "What do you? how much have you got and how much do you want? He said, will you send me 500 bucks? I've got a help songbook. I've got all, named all these personal things, all autographed by the Beatles to him or just autographed. I said, no, send it. So I had all this stuff. So I took it all to Ringo. I bought 80 pieces of stuff. First day of rehearsal, he said, I'm not signing all that bloody pile of junk. Pick your two most favorite things. So I picked two very favorite things, which one of which was the Beatles songbook, which he signed again because I've got him signing it mm-hmm. once and then obviously 25, 26 years later. And then, but throughout the tour, and I was with him three months, I'd go into him, he'd be feeling good. Uh, Richie, would you sign this? Would you sign this? My mother's out there. And he was a very generous guy at this time. Went out and met my, he said, I'll meet anybody's mom. Mums are the greatest. They paid for our music lessons. And he went and had pictures taken with my mother and my brother and all my kids, my little daughter hanging out with his daughter and his granddaughter and stuff. He was just really a great, wonderful guy. From the 1990s, that's Randy Bachman in conversation with Dale Smith. That's a new clip. We've never played it on the show before, and it is a great story. Wonderful. This is a special 100th episode of Famous Lost Words. It's also our first episode of 2022. Happy New Year. We have so many can't-miss episodes in the archive, like the breakup special with members of Supertramp, Chicago, Foreigner, Styx, Journey, and Black Sabbath talking about the drama that pulled those bands apart. Or our 70s episode, or the two specials we have on the 80s. It's all available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Still to come this week, one of our favorite storytellers talks about the 24 hours in London with Fleetwood Mac and Led Zeppelin and how he lived to tell about it. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, our 100th episode. Can you add a little reverb to that, Tom? 100th! (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, that's it. Tom, Roger Ashby, I don't need to tell you, is a first-rate storyteller. And he's got a great one about going to the movies with Led Zeppelin, drinking in London, and just to top the whole thing off, seeing Fleetwood Mac. Oh, I love this story. So, Roger, paint the picture. What year are we talking about? It was the year that the movie The Song Remains the Same came out, the Led Zeppelin movie and album of the same name. Okay. In 1976, when the album and the movie were released, the record company at the time uh, around the world was sending over various radio people to view the movie with the band. And this was back in the decadent 70s when record companies had way too much money. And, and I was chosen to be the, uh, the one to go from the chum group of radio stations. So uh, I flew over and uh, settled in in a hotel room. The first time I'd ever been to England, actually. I uh, drank the mini bar dry in the room because uh, there was really yeah, nothing one else does. to do. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah. And there was uh, the girl on the, on the reception desk in the hotel was from Pickering, as it turned out. She'd moved over to England, so uh, we, we struck up a conversation, and, and the night went on. And then in the morning when I get up, uh, I'm feeling a little tired and not very energetic, <laughs> and I have to be to a movie theater in the West End of London by 11 a.m., for a screening of the movie. And I really didn't know what to expect, but the the West End Theater that I went to was like the old Imperial Theater in Toronto, which at one time had enough room for 2,000 people. Oh. So here I am in this big theater in the West End of London, old-fashioned theater, and there's at least, I, I don't know if there were 2,000, but there were at least 1,000 seats in that theater, and there were seven of us. There was me, <laughs> four members of the band, <laughs> their manager, Peter Grant, and a fellow from the record company oh in, in England. Oh, my God. Okay? I, I, was, nice. I was stunned because on the way over, I thought, I can kind of get lost in the crowd because right. I'm not really feeling all that well. <laughs> there was no crowd. <laughs> it, was, it was just us. And we all sat side by side. So I've got, I think I had Robert Plant on one side and John Paul Jones on the other. And, oh, man. And, and the movie starts, and I start to nod off. <laughs> And I think, I can't fall asleep. I'm Led Zeppelin sitting here, and I'm watching their movie. I can't fall asleep. So I did manage to stay awake. I watched the movie. It was fantastic. So now it's, I don't know, 12, 31 o'clock, and the fellow from the record company says to Peter Grant, why don't we we head back to your office? Uh, So that's what we did. The seven of us went back to Peter Grant's office, and we start drinking again. (laughs) And I'm still hungover from the night before. So here we are, you know, we start drinking in the afternoon. The first one to leave was um, John Paul Jones, I believe, and then I think Jimmy Page left, and then Robert Plant left. So there's, there's John Bonham, me, and Peter Grant, and the guy from the record company. <laughs> and I'm, I'm relying on the guy from the record company to drive me around to get me back to the hotel, so I couldn't leave till he left, really, theoretically. Right. So finally we leave. I go back to the hotel room, and... Um, he says, how would you like to go and see Fleetwood Mac tonight? They're in town. They're playing in London. I thought, well, 
yeah, I mean, I'm only here for 48 hours. Why not? So uh, I get I get changed, I freshen up, and then this guy comes to pick me up, and we go to the Fleetwood Mac concert, and we go backstage, of course, and we meet the band, and Stevie Nicks looked beautiful. Oh, man. And uh, John McVie held on to <laughs> my hand for support because he was having trouble standing up. That's great. No, the whole day was fantastic. Oh, and, man. You know, I can't remember the conversation that I had with members of Led Zeppelin, but uh, it was just a thrill to be with them in the theater and then back in Peter mm-hmm. Grant's office. So that's that's one of the What most did they think of the movie? Do they, uh, do they cheer it on? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were pretty quiet. They just kind of sat there. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a very <laughs> raucous event at all. But That's yeah. great. That's a strange one. That image of you in a thousand oh, I know. capacity theater with I know. just them and, and, and you the, know, to this day, band. to this day, I don't understand why they did it that way. Because surely to God, the band didn't sit there with one person at a time and watch <laughs> the movie over and over and over again. <laughs> So, Christopher, I worked with Roger for more than 30 years, and we remain friends to this day. And he is a man of many talents, a legend in the Mm -hmm. industry. And his ability to tell a great story is unmatched. I just love the way he tells that, right? When he said he wanted to get lost in the crowd in the theater, and then he walks in, there's no crowd. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, you can enjoy the Roger Ashby Oldie Show, now streaming on the iHeartRadio app. This week, we're recalling some of our favorite stories from the show, and there is no shortage. Okay, Christopher, here it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, what can I say, Tom? This was one of my wackiest evenings of all time, and every word is true. Oh, it's the Robert Plant story? I'm afraid so. <laughs> I have a plant story for you. When uh, Alana was on tour with Robert as his opening act, they were uh, a couple for a while, shall we yes. say? Yes, yes. And... Um, he was. He We're was talking really, about Atlanta Miles here for anybody who's new to the game here. Okay, he go. was really fun to hang out with because I was on a lot of that tour, and he'd have dinner with the crew members and everything. Very, very loose, easygoing guy. Anyway, he invited me and a few of my friends to join he and Atlanta at Spago Restaurant, which at the time was that was Wolfgang Puck's sort of first restaurant. You know, he's the celebrity chef, mm-hmm. and it was a very prestigious place to go. Mm-hmm. So we go, and it's kind of like. If you could imagine having dinner with Henry VIII, it's like he's carrying, <laughs> yeah, more wine for all my friends in the, in the court. You know, it's like that, yes. kind of having dinner with him. And I was sitting right beside him, and it was, it was hilarious. I mean, he just, he knows how to carry the moment, okay? Yeah. So at one point, um, Wolfgang Puck, who's trying desperately to curry favor, brings out a pizza, because that was what he served, in the shape of a double-necked guitar. (laughs) I know, which I loved. Anyway, the dinner goes on and on, and so then he and Alana are sort of swanning around the room saying hi to various people and stuff, and so I'm there, and among my friends is Mike Myers. He's at the dinner as well. Wow. And every time plant says something outrageous he and i look at each other and pretend to be taking notes right during the whole dinner i think mike might have used those notes later on in the austin power stuff but i mean so anyway finally at the end of the night you know they're busy doing their thing and and i'm thinking this is one of the weirdest nights i've ever experienced and we go out to the valet parking and who's there but don rickles and his wife (laughs) And he's saying to her, he's like, you are hey, honey, do you know who that was in there? That was Led Zeppelin. Yeah, the guy with the broad and the hair. Yeah, we were, hey, we were having dinner with Led Zeppelin. You know who that guy is, don't you, honey? It's like, I'm thinking, I, this didn't really happen. I'm just oh making this God. up as it goes along. It, yes. So, and one more, just little button on the story. Yeah. He stuck me with the bill. 
No way. He did. He did. Oh, my God. It was worth it. Wow. So he's dating Alana, and he sticks you with the bill. <laughs> After inviting me to dinner That's, at Spago. Oh, that's great. One of our favorite stories in the history of our show. If you're a Robert Plant fan, check out interviews with him in episodes 107 and 311. This is Famous Lost Words as we celebrate some of our favorite stories from our show's history. From 1972, The Eagles and Take It Easy with Glenn Fry on lead vocals. Tom, Glenn Fry confronts head-on the assessment of producer Glenn Johns, who produced the first two albums for the band. The only thing is, it's too bad we don't get to hear it from Johns directly, because he's a man of very strongly held opinions, yep. which you can glean from his autobiography if you've seen it, Sound Man. He's also, 50 years belatedly, having a moment with his role in Get Back as the best-dressed producer in London. That's absolutely true. Boy, after that Beatles special aired, I've been on Twitter a lot since then, you know, to see what people are saying about the special, and everybody is just going berserk over Glyn John's wardrobe and kind of his style. It's just fantastic. Okay, let's hear this clip from the mid-80s Glenn Frying conversation with Roger Bartel. I do want to ask you about an interview with Glenn John's that appeared in the Musician Magazine, the new issue. Have you read it? No, I haven't, but I'd be interested to see what uh, Glenn John's had to say. All right, I'll tell you. How many uh, albums did he produce for the Eagles? Four? No, he produced two. Which ones? He did the first two albums, and then he did two tracks on the On the Border album. This is what he says. One of the many things he says. Glenn Fry was far more verbose about being the leader of the Eagles than Henley was. My major problem with the Eagles was the desire of Glenn Fry to be the leader of the band, and Glenn and Don's opinion that their writing was far stronger than anybody else's. They were quite superior in their attitude to the other songs. Don and Glenn became so insecure about the end result that they weren't going to have anything that they didn't think was up to their quality of writing on the record. Now, they may be right to think that way. I'm not knocking them out of hand, but I didn't agree with them, and I could see that it could cause a hell of a cleft in the band. It could easily be dealt with if they just relax a little bit, and the band would stay together as a great musical unit, which it was. So there was a clash, and eventually they became what they considered to be rock and roll. They filled the band with guitar players who played rock and roll. They turned themselves into what they thought a rock and roll band should be. A pretty lame one, in my view. Awful. But they were wonderful at other things. Comment? He's entitled to his opinion. I knew you were going to say that. You know, it's a free, it's a free country, and mm. it's a free world. Do you agree and, with anything he said there? Oh, I probably think uh, he's definitely right about the fact that Henley and I felt that we knew what kind of songs should be written for the Eagles. The and Texas saying again, that, it ain't it, bragging if it's true. You guys no. were stronger writers? Hey, all I can tell you is look at the record. Glenn Johns was dismissed as the Eagles producer after two and a half albums because of the opinions that he expressed right there. You mm -hmm. know, Glenn Johns was tired of rock and roll. Glenn Johns was burned out. Glenn Johns spent hours, days, and weeks and months in the studio with the Stones waiting for Keith to get it together. And the Who. With the Faces, mm -hmm. with the Who. So you take this guy, and what he, he was, uh, Glenn Johns, in his heart of hearts, really, I think, was always sort of a folk music guy. Mm -hmm. he what he loved about the Eagles was the vocals. He would have been happy for us to do songs like Train Leaves Here This Morning and Peaceful Easy Feeling and ride off into the sunset that way. But if you want to have a successful career and you want to sell out 
you know, large halls and play baseball stadiums and try to make it to the top of Mount Moolah. I think you have to be more multidimensional than that. You notice that the Eagles never abandon their vocals. We may have added guitar players to the band, but we never we never strayed away from what I felt our strong suit was, which was songwriting and singing. Uh, you know, so some of the stuff that he says, I guess you might say, is true. You know, he's he's entitled to his opinion, but, you know, as I say, the albums that Glenn produced, you know, sold around 500,000. Mm. The albums that we did after him sold increasingly more numbers, mm. you know. Well, that we may or may not have numbers. to do with him, but... I think it does. Yeah. I think it's got something to do with him. What a great clip. I love a little bit of drama, and Glenn and Glenn provide it right there. From 1964, that's Martha and the Vandellas with the Motown classic Dancing in the Street. Tom, Martha Reeves tells you how to build a career literally from the bottom rung of the ladder and also the need to be ready when opportunity knocks. We wanted to get on that label and we couldn't swing the swing the audition because at that time they weren't taking any more auditions. I think that one building they had on, on the boulevard was uh, overran at that time. So I took the first day in our secretary position there. And I worked uh, with uh, bosses such as Smokey Robinson, Holland Dozier Holland, uh, uh, William Stevenson, Clarence Paul, Barrett Strong, I think he was a producer at that time, too. I mean, everybody was my boss at that time. And from that, uh, it led to a, a, an actual uh, background position. So I brought the two girls in, Annette Beard and Rosalind Ashford. We started doing background work, and we came up with Marvin Gaye's first album, A Stubborn Kind of Fella. Mary Wells didn't show up one day for a session, and I was there. So in doing the demo for Mary Wells, I wound up with the record, which was my first release on Gordy, called I Have to Let Him Go. Great story about an artist getting a wonderful opportunity and turning it into a career. Listen to more in our Motown specials, which are episodes 603 and 604. Those are two of my favorite episodes and so revealing about... Uh, a time in musical history that we glorify, but maybe we don't know all the details that went on behind the scenes. Absolutely. And the real star of the show, especially in episode 603, is Smokey Robinson, in which we hear oh, yeah. him tell the story behind so many great songs. And he is wonderful in that. So those episodes cannot be recommended highly enough. That's Adam Levine and Maroon 5 and Christina Aguilera and Moves Like Jagger. Adam Levine has a great story for us. I love this one. It's a <laughs> kind of a combined tale of fatherhood, kids' sports, and the special feeling when things just fall into place. When you were seven years old, you lived and breathed basketball, and there was a whole story about when you were playing for the YMCA team. You were up 24-23, 10 <laughs> seconds left. Your dad... It's all coming back to me. The Go visuals. On. Let's go back now. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah, I mean, it's just a silly story. When I was a kid, my dad was my basketball coach. And I was like maybe eight, seven, eight, something like that. And I don't know if you've ever watched a young kid's basketball game, but <laughs> like it's really uncool to overreact if you're the coach and get a technical foul, which my father did because he got angry, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so he got like a technical foul at the worst possible time in the game, right? So these kids were kids. We're eight, you know. So all these kids are devastated. The parents are getting angry. You know, this kid's you know hits the free throw. So now they're up by one point, and they're gonna now win the championship game because my dad is being kind of an a hole. You know, and 
and, and they're kids. You're not supposed. You know, it's not supposed to be the coach's fault that your kids are going to lose this game and be crushed. You know, and so my dad just looked at me and he was just like, "You got to do something about this." And I was like, "All right, all right, dad." And I'll never forget it. You know, it was five. It was one of those classic, you know, movie moments where they are kind of guy inbounded the ball to me, and I was I took some horrible. You know, I was a lefty. So I didn't have a right hand, so I just dribble into the corner. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're kids. You just, gonna, have you ever they watched swarm. a kid's basketball game? It's just little packs of yeah, children running right. around with yeah. the basketball. Right. And I, I, I was like, all right, I got to do it. And I threw up some awful shot from, like, you know, the corner baseline. So awful. Off the backboard and the lights and the wherever, whatever it could bounce off of it, bounced off of it. And it went in. And it was one of those, like, <laughs> and my father, like, my father, like, hit the ground and started, you know, praying. <laughs> it was just like, I saved him. I don't know how, but I did. And, and uh, I'll never forget. And that's one of those moments because I was a really shy kid. Yeah. And I, was, I, was like, I was like, huh, wait a minute. I kind of like this. I like I feeling like this. this way. I like being liked. <laughs> I'm going to start a band. <laughs> okay, that great story was recorded live in Barbados in 2011. Maroon 5 had performed the night before for all of the winners of a contest that we ran, which included a trip to Barbados and a live concert with Jennifer Hudson, Susie McNeil, and Maroon 5. And so he's up bright and early the next day, joins us on our morning show. It was probably 7 in the morning after, you know, they played probably until 11 or 11.30 at night. And it was wild. And he came in, and he's just one of those people. We've talked about how Paul McCartney, you sit him down in front of a microphone, and you talk to him, and he's on, and he's friendly, and he's engaged. And Mm -hmm. that's exactly what Adam Levine of Maroon 5 was like on that day. Except he didn't write, hey, Jude. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Christopher, so before we dig ourselves into another hole. I'm loving this. This is just one of my favorite episodes already, and we haven't even finished recording it. One of my favorite things, and it doesn't happen very often with artists, is that it's those rare moments of humility and humor from someone who's been at the top and then not. Here's Al Stewart. Okay, I just want to put this in context first. So Al Stewart is talking about a case of mistaken identity after the song West End Girls by Pet Shop Boys comes out. Okay, West End Girls came out. I walked out of a hotel and it was like, you know, it's early in the morning and I can't see, even see straight. I'm staggering out with my luggage and the doorman comes up to me. He says, love your new record. I'm like, what, what, is he, what is this man talking about, you know? And I, and I said, what record? I made a record. You know, he says, oh, West End Girls. And that was my first, you know, that was the first time that happened. And mm-hmm. then immediately after that, there was a sort of blitzkrieg in, in the newspapers. I was getting press cuttings from all over the place. Uh, from the Pet Shop Boys, who were extremely miffed at the idea of being compared with me, you know, so they didn't like it at all. <laughs> and uh, I got a little mileage out of it for a while. And then for a while, people said, why haven't you made a record for a while? And I said, it's because the Pet Shop Boys borrowed my voice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's Al Stewart from the late 80s. Okay, so what we have to do is we have to actually compare the songs just to give you an impression of why people were saying that about Al Stewart and Pet Shop Boys. So first of all, from 1976, this is Year of the Cat by Al Stewart. So have a listen to his voice. On a morning from a bogart movie In a country where they turn by time Okay, there you go. Year of the Cat, Al Stewart, 1976. So now we jump ahead to 1986 with Pet Shop Boys and West End Girls. Okay, (laughs) 
<laughs> so you can hear right there how people would have kind of thought that that guy, yep. Neil Tennant of mm-hmm. Pet Shop Boys, sounded like Al Stewart. Great stuff. And I do love it. It's the year of the pet. <laughs> if I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you a fur coat, but not a real fur coat that's cruel. From 1992, Bare Naked Ladies and If I Had a Million Dollars. Christopher? <laughs> Tom Ed Robertson from Bare Naked Ladies tells a brilliant story of the nexus of creative thinking and flagrant self promotion. So let's talk about the video days. And your earliest video cost $1 to make. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, we I think we probably had a show at the Horseshoe that night. And uh, Speaker's Corner was all the rage in right, Toronto. So explain, right, so explain to people not from Toronto what Speaker's Corner was. Well, not only not from Toronto, but uh, to people in the age of YouTube and cell phones like we didn't have that in, in 1990, <laughs> right. right? So there was a video booth on the corner of Queen and John, and you could go in there and drop a loony in and say whatever you wanted to say. And right. that's mostly what it was. Right. It was people saying, you know, I live on uh, uh, Parliament, and the parking is just ridiculous. Somebody's got to do something about, right. you know, we need a bike lane on, yeah. you know. It, it was community voices, And every week, those were compiled together and aired on a Sunday afternoon show, Speaker's Corner. And it was a a hit. Like, people liked it. It was Toronto citizens speaking their mind. Sometimes it was hammered people (laughs) after they'd been out at the clubs all night. It was people proposing. Right. You never knew what you were going to get. That's right. And there was a lot of stuff, a lot of videos that people spent a dollar on that we could never have shown on TV. I'm sure. I've heard about those. I'm sure they exist still (laughs) on on illicit hard drives. Um, But so we had a show probably at the Horseshoe, maybe the ultrasound show bar. Um, We said, well, let's put a dollar in and cram the whole band into the booth and play a song. (laughs) And let's see if they air it, you know. not only did they air it, but it went into heavy rotation on much music. For a dollar. One dollar. <laughs> and I remember the floor director, Dennis Saunders, at the time, when he contacted us, he said, I can't, I can't believe you guys are the first guys to use this as a blatant promotional right, device. Right, Oh, what a great story. One dollar, mm-hmm. full rotation on much music. That's just fantastic. <laughs> By the way, and I believe uh, Ed tells much the same story in your book, Is This Live? The Wild Early Years of Much Music, the nation's music station. And so many other artists talk about when their videos got on much. But I got to tell you, I think maybe I love that story the most. Well, the one he told me is a variation on that theme. And it was a good one because they had a gig coming up, a very special gig and they wanted to promote it. So right. they all crammed into Speaker's Corner and they had their 60 seconds and they wrote a song that incorporated um, the name of the, sh- the the venue where they were performing, the date, the time, the price and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's pretty resourceful stuff, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. It's just great. And Ed is so great. And the clip that we just heard is from my conversation in 2019, and you can hear more of that chat with Ed, check out episode 408. Maybe you might have some advice to give on how to be in 
From 1994, that's Jan Arden and Insensitive. Jan's a natural storyteller, and Mm -hmm. this is one that changed her life and her career. Jan, you got your record deal in a really unusual way. There was a record company guy who listened to your demo, was not going to sign you, but then something changed his mind. Can you tell that story? Well, the man's name is Alan Reed. He now runs the Junos. He's such a good guy. We've been, you know, obviously known each other for 30 years, but yeah, he, uh, his, his girlfriend, fiance, whatever, broke up with him, 26 years old. He'd never been broken up with in his life. It was devastating. Mm-hmm. When he came back to work, when he, you know, got sort of his feet under him again, hopped into his car, the cassette that I had been turned down by, you know, he listened to it. Now I don't get it. Hopped into his car, fires it up. And there was a song that came on called, I just don't love you anymore, which always <laughs> makes me laugh. <laughs> and he just, he had that moment where he's like, I don't know who will ever buy this, but I get it now. I'm a 26 year old white guy. And I want to sign Nirvana or Pearl Jam or Nine Inch Nails or Alice in Chains. I don't want a chick from the prairies. And he he just, it got, that's, that's, he changed his mind. A great story from Jan about the moment that changed her life after one of her songs changed someone else's life. I really, really like that story. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. This is our 100th episode and the last one of season seven. Looking ahead to season eight, we've got interviews with Keith Richards, Tina Turner, Cindy Lauper, who is genuinely hilarious, and Sting, who is surprisingly hilarious. If you're a fan of New Wave, we've got some artists that are right up your alley. So much more to come, including the best of the 1960s in the next season of Famous Lost Words. All right, up next, we have my buddy Chantal. Chantal Kreviazic has a story about a memorable meeting, one that led to a lifetime relationship. Time for the <laughs> the story of how you met Rain right. yeah. is one that I have remembered. So uh-huh. can you share that with us? Oh, yeah. I just, um, I was on a video shoot in Toronto. It was my first time in Toronto. I didn't know anybody. And I said to the makeup artist on the video shoot, uh, it was for my first single, first video, first kind of a lot of firsts that day. And I just said, you know, this, I've been given three tickets by the president of Sony for three sets of tickets for this concert tonight for Pearl Jam. I said, I don't know Maple Leaf Gardens, do you? Like, which ones are better tickets? And she said, oh, those are good tickets. And I said, okay, I'll give the others away. You want to come with me? So we gave the other tickets away to, like, crew people on the set or whatever. And she came with me to the concert. And we walked up the stairs and we sat down. And I looked behind me and I saw this man and this young man. And I said to the president who happened to end up actually being seated next to me, I said, who's the guy behind me? And he said, oh, that's Rain from Our Lady Peace. And I said, oh, I'd like to meet him. And then he introduced <laughs> us. And that was it. And, and I, I knew that th- that was it. You we, knew. You're like, this mm-hmm. is my man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, that evening, we, I said to him, I said, oh, well, we're having a rap party for my video at the Rivoli, this, you know, yeah, this in little uh, pub in Toronto. And I said, would you like to come? And he said, oh, yeah, maybe I'll try and come. And then he did. And then 
when we were leaving, I had to grab these bags that I had like different things in them from the, the video shoot and so on. And we walked to his car and he drove me back to my hotel and we were walking back to the car and he was carrying one handle of one of the bags and I was carrying the other. And then he carried another. I love like, that. And we were all, like, we were just it was, like a you team. were just already in yeah. sync. We were so totally he had that, the same feeling. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then when we got back to, he dropped me off at the hotel and I couldn't sleep and I had fallen in love with him for sure. And, <laughs> and, um, and I was like, God, should I call him? Because it's so late. But he gave me his number. Yeah. I didn't have, he didn't have mine, but I had his. And I was like, oh, I really want to call him. But that's, it's so late to call. Is that bad? And maybe that'd be a bad thing, you know? Yes. And I finally got the, the, the courage and I called him. Late at night. I did. Yeah. And I said, he's answered very quickly. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Am I waking up your family or something? And he said, no, I'm on the other line trying to call you at the hotel, but no they, I'm not spelling way. your name right. And they can't get me through to you. So he'd been trying to. Me. You were trying to call each other at the yeah, same yeah. time. Same it was time. meant to be, oh, clearly. Yeah, yeah. It was oh, yeah. meant to be. So how long yeah. ago was that? That was over 20, 20 and a half years ago. That's great. Special thanks to the gang at CJAD in Montreal for supplying that audio. That's Natasha Hall of CJAD in conversation with Chantal Kreviazic. When I heard that, I just had to run that. And we have not heard that one on this show before. So thanks very much. It's a to, good one. Yeah, to Natasha and CJAD for that. This is the 100th episode of Famous Lost Words as we celebrate with some of our favorite stories. If you're new to the party, what we do is dig up classic interviews with the biggest musicians ever and play the best parts for you. Okay, Christopher, what's next? Oh no, it's my embarrassing story, isn't it? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I want to alert the listeners to say this is, this is not something you should miss. Um, but be not afraid. <laughs> this story did run before in episode 601. Yeah, that was our tribute to Eddie Van Halen. Yep. And I, there's, no more, there's no more fitting tribute than this tale but out of Famous Lost Words <laughs> creator Tom Jokic. Tom has the floor in more ways than one. And I just want to say I would love a table for two near the dance floor, please. <laughs> it's about 1983, I think. And I'm DJing in a club in Toronto called Davy C's. Now, Davy C's is more of a bar than a club. And many nights, I'm just providing background music to all the people who are there. But there is a bit of a dance floor. And I, I am kind of known when I DJ as a, as a DJ who does not stand still when he, when he plays music. So if <laughs> okay. I happen to like the song, there's a very good chance that I'm either going to be up on the stage or in the DJ area going nuts myself or oh. I'm going to be on the dance floor. So this was oh, not oh unusual my. for me. Right. So I see, you know, in this club, Davy C's, corner of Bay and Elm, downtown Toronto, you know, I'm working my shift, and in walk Eddie Van Halen and Valerie Bertinelli, and they sit at a table right beside the dance floor. And I <laughs> lose my mind. And what I do is I think I play their cover of... Dancing in the Street from the album Diver Down because it's a really good dance song. And I went out there and honestly, Christopher, I have no idea if there was anybody else on the dance floor, but I went out there and I danced like my life depended on it. And I was literally three feet away doing like twirls right wow. in front of Eddie and Val. And in hindsight, <laughs> it's funny, I've forgotten all about that story. I'd forgotten yeah. all about it until Eddie's passing, but then I remembered that that had happened and how happy I was in that moment to be in the same room with Valerie Bertinelli, who I liked from one day at a time, Ooh. and especially from Eddie Van Halen. And I do remember 
that they kind of looked at each other in a bemused fashion while I was going berserk on the dance floor. Wow. And I'm embarrassed by that fact, but I got to tell you, even though I am embarrassed, I was very, mm. very happy in that moment. And it was great. I'm so glad that I got to, quote unquote, meet him and that he got to see me, even, he, <laughs> even if he thought like, who's this kid, right? <laughs> so there you go. I, I detect more than a tiny little note of pride in this moment. Uh, but you know what? You're entitled to it. I mean, it's let's face it. Death does um, bring back a lot of repressed memories. And um, yes, this is one of them. <laughs> no kidding, huh? No kidding. You know, Christopher, sometimes we embarrass ourselves around our heroes. And sometimes no. we embarrass ourselves and don't care that we did. And that's the mm. case for me with that story. <laughs> so good. Up next on our 100th episode of Famous Lost Words is a story you have not heard yet. A few days ago, I met up with our buddy, Brent Jensen, host of the great podcast, No Sleep Till Sudbury, on which Brent... Great podcast. Yes, on which Brent talks to some amazing guests like Rick Emmett of Triumph, The Spoons, and Christopher Ward. And when he runs out of good guests, he calls me up to be on his show. So, (laughs) Christopher, have a listen to this story. Okay. This has something to do with you recording an interview for your show. Is that correct? It, it does. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I can't believe you're pulling this out of me. <laughs> okay, so um, the the show had just started. This is back in 2017. So No Sleep Till Sudbury was just kind of getting on its feet. This is, I think it was episode you know, 13 or 14. It was very, very early in the show's history. And as a result, I was still learning the show's, uh, you know, how to use the equipment and all that stuff. Sure. Right? So... Uh, Twisted Sister founder and guitar player J.J. French is on the show. And I'm super excited. First time I've spoken to him. And we're doing the show um, over uh, Skype. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So now, so, and the reason why is just because we didn't, I didn't have the, the cell phone technology and, and all the, you know, all the, 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 the means to hook it up and all that stuff. So right. Skype was just the easiest way to do it. Sure. And Zoom really wasn't a thing back then. It was not. Okay. Right. So Skype was the go-to. So I figured that we would do an audio call, right? Easy because it's a podcast. There's no video. And so he said, yeah, sure. That's fantastic. It's two o'clock, whatever it was. Now this is in the summertime. This is July. Right. The dog days of summer. Okay. (laughs) So I'm doing it in my office upstairs in my house and I've got everything ready. I'm, I'm, you know, a little bit nervous. It's my first really big guest. Yeah. And it was very, very hot. Yeah. So the air conditioning doesn't make it all the way up to the top floor right. in a house, as you know, right. you know, not sufficiently anyway. Yeah. So I figured because this is an audio call, I'm just going to take my shirt off. You know, it was like 40 degrees. <laughs> I want to say, right. So I've got no shirt on. You can't see me. It doesn't matter. Right. So I've got my headset on. I've got no shirt on. It's an audio call only. So I click on the button and JJ French pops up on my, on my computer screen and I freeze. And I think if he, I can see him, Maybe he can see me <laughs> shirtless. So I say to, and he kind of, he kind of is just, he's looking at me and he's, he's not saying anything. And I said, can you see me right now? <laughs> and he said, yep. <laughs> so that great. I said, let me call you back. And I click, I, you know, I, I, I click off. And so <laughs> God, I can't believe I did that. Yeah, I didn't know how Skype worked with the audio, the video. Sure. It wasn't, it wasn't clearly defined. Sure. So anyway, I set it back up, 
<laughs> now with my shirt. I've got right. my shirt on now. And so he comes back on and we've never met. Like he has no idea who I am. Right. Right. So I'm thinking like, how am I going to recover from this? So he comes back on and we can't see each other now. I said, can you see me? I'm trying to joke it off. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, it, everything is good. It's still kind of weird though, right? <laughs> and so like, I'm so weirded out by this that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get this rolling. And so we're talking and I'm from Sudbury. And so he tells me about the time that the Twisted Sister played in Sudbury. And we're talking about the cold weather and all that stuff. And so, you know, we have a nice conversation going pre-show uh, and then we, we get into it and, and he, he told me this fantastic story about traveling through Sudbury on his way to, you know, Calgary. Yeah. And, uh, I looked down and I hadn't pressed record <laughs> because I was so flustered. Both Christopher and I have both told stories on the show of us starting a conversation and it's not recording or we run out of tape yeah. in the old reel to reel days. So we can relate to this kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, so, and you know, you, you know that feeling in your chest, your heart sinks. Yes. It's like, yeah. oh no, I saw that the red light was not, you know, it was blinking and I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Yeah. So I said, JJ, can I just stop you there for a second? He says, yeah, yeah. I said, uh, I, I, your levels aren't the best, so can we start over again? Oh, good call. <laughs> like, blame it on the technology always, right? I, I didn't know what to do. No, that's honestly, you have to do that because you can't say in that moment, look, I'm incompetent, so I'm going to need you to start again, right? <laughs> and I didn't have my shirt on previously. <laughs> That's so good. JJ French, scared shirtless. I can see the headline. <laughs> Brad Jetson from No Sleep Till Sudbury, thanks very much for joining us. You're welcome, Tom. Congratulations on your 100th episode. Oh, thank you so much. I never thought we'd make it. I love the show, man. Oh, my. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. I love when people have the nerve to just make themselves look so bad. Yes, exactly. Well, he, like I said, he had me in stitches on the golf course when he told me that. And I just said, dude, you have to tell that story. Would you do it? And he goes, he thought about it for a second. He goes, yeah, why not? And so, you yeah. know, Brett's a great guy. He's well, become a great friend. Honestly, he lives just down the road. And it is funny that we are... We both live virtually in the same neighborhood, and we both have music podcasts in which we talk to some of our favorite artists. And so I can't recommend his show enough. It's called No Sleep Till Sudbury or his Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Brent Jensen Music. He gets into trouble, but he gets out of it beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, he does. This is a special edition of Famous Lost Words, our 100th episode. This week, it's some of our favorite stories from the previous 99 episodes. From 1978, I just want to stop Gino Vanelli. Tom, Gino tells a long and detailed story that could easily be taken for fiction. And yes, it has the happy ending that we wait and hope for during the telling. I hear this story and I go, wait a minute, is this true? This sounds like fiction to me. And it's a story that goes to the early 70s and you and Joe basically ambush Herb Albert to get um, a record contract. Is that true? The, the, the true, true story of yeah. it is, is, is that we ran out of money. I mean, that's, we were in, in Los Angeles for about three and a half, four months. We knocked on every every possible door, and uh, every door was basically slammed in our face. And we literally had five dollars left, 
and was we were staying at a place called the Motel Orange. And it sounds classy. It, very classy. <laughs> yes. Yes, especially. I mean, it, 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 it was bad, let me tell yeah. you. So Joe says, we got to leave. Uh, it's day before New Year's Eve. And I said, I, I don't think I want to leave because I, I had lived in New York for a year and a half. Yeah. Almost got a record deal. And now I'd been in L.A. for almost four months. And there's just there was no way I was going to leave without a record deal. And um, so I, I wake up early in the morning. Um, and I'm telling this story exactly how it okay. happened. <laughs> I, I walked along Sunset Boulevard for a couple minutes, and uh, early in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, and um, I stopped into a church, and uh, I needed time to just reflect and not hear the sound of, of beeping horns. And so the church was awfully quiet, and I hadn't been in a church for 20 years. It, it felt also strangely, mysteriously familiar to me. And so I just sat down in the pews, and I fell asleep. And uh, three or four hours later, it seemed to me that I knew exactly what to do. And there we were. I, I went to get my brother, and we, we stayed outside the, the gates of uh, Charlie Chaplin's studio, which was uh, A&M Records at the time. And for, for those who don't know, A&M Records, that, if you wanted to be uh, signed to an independent label who made the greatest music on the planet, A&M was the place to mm-hmm. be. Because, I mean, A&M had... Cat Stevens, Joe Carker, Quincy Jones. I mean, later on, the police, Carol King at the time, mm-hmm. uh, Joni Mitchell, Peter Frampton, Peter think? Frampton, mm-hmm. and, and Super Tramp were there. Right. I mean, I, I mean, great artist after great artist. So uh, I stood outside the gates of A and M for a couple of hours, three hours, until the guard came down from his tower and um, warned me not to, you know, crash the gates. And I said, <laughs> Oh no, I'm, I'll never crash the gates. And that's when I saw Herb uh, get out of his office, walk through the parking lot, dropped my guitar, and I ran through the gates. <laughs> yeah. He, he started, cha- I mean, he, he, he unholstered his gun, and he started chasing me because, I mean, he didn't know who I was. Right. A month before that, uh, Lonnie Hall, uh, Herb's wife, right. was nearly kidnapped. She was thrown into a car and managed to escape. So they probably thought this was round two. I don't know. I, I did have that sort of look to myself, you know, in those days. <laughs> Who's this hirsute fellow? <laughs> yes, I know. All but for the crucifix on my chest, you know. <laughs> but the hair, <laughs> and the hair out. The uh, yeah. yeah, I know. Yes, and you can never see my shoulders. <laughs> and um, so I, I did make it to Herb. And um, as I made it to Herb and accosted him, grabbed his shoulder, he turned, uh, went a little pale on me. And then when that happened, Johnny the guard I later found out his name was Johnny, pulled me away from Herb to make sure I wasn't going to hurt him and started pulling me out, out of the lot. And I just turned around and Herb, I gave him that look and Herb just saw. I mean, this is the unspoken word. It, it's almost, we know when people look at each other and they mm-hmm. know each other. Mm-hmm. And Herb looked at me, I looked at him, it's like we knew each other. Wow. And, and he said, hold on, Johnny. And, I, and he summoned me and he said, what do you want? I said, let me play for you. Just let me play for you. What song? And he said, come back in 30 minutes. And okay. I, I played um, Crazy Life, Mama Coco, People Gotta Move, um, a couple of the songs I can't remember, but at least three or four songs. Yeah. And all the while I was playing, I mean, I thought I was bombing because he had his head, his forehead on the table, listening uh, with his head down. He just lifted his head and said, welcome to the family. <gasps> I just got goosebumps. That is a great story. So just you on your guitar. Yeah. You're not playing him a tape. No, no, you no. You are no. playing for him. No, I took my guitar and, <gasps> people, come on, and just start playing that. And he went, all right. That's amazing. 
Oh, I love that. And if you like that story, there's much more to that chat with me and Gino Vanelli in episode 316, including the stories behind some of his biggest hits. He's got amazing recall. That's what yes. killed me. <laughs> Can you just see the look on poor Herb Albert's face as this guy well, with the with big the security th element? Yes. Yeah. <sighs> he breaks away from the security guard to run towards <laughs> Herb Albert a day or two after someone tried to kidnap Lanny Hall, Herb Albert's wife at the time. And, you know, Herb himself is a legend. He runs a legendary record label. And this big hairy fella from Montreal is running towards him. And then that look on Gino's face that told him, you know what, it's safe. And this guy has something to tell you. I, I really like that story a lot. It's a wacky one. <laughs> Tom, you asked Ivan from Men Without Hats for a story of his choosing, right? Yeah. And he gave you a good one, one that revolves around playing <laughs> outdoors in Toronto for a large crowd. One of the most memorable concerts I did was was in Toronto, was at the, the Ontario Place Forum. It was kind of the, there was two nights, we had two nights booked in there. And uh, we had figured the last, the biggest show we had done was, we had played in front of a thousand people and that was our biggest concert. And we were like, we were hoping maybe to top that. Hopefully we could top that at Ontario Place, you know, yeah. and make that our biggest concert. And we had two nights, so we were, we didn't know. Well, anyway, we got there the first day, and, and there was 3,000 people at the sound check for the first day. <laughs> and uh, a huge, uh, we, we, didn't ex we didn't know, we didn't expect it. We didn't know what was going on. We walked out to do our sound check, and just a, a roar exploded from the biggest crowd I'd ever been in front of in my life. And it turned out we broke attendance records, whatever, but they had this revolving stage, too. Yes. And the first night, I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was the fact that we didn't have a drummer or what but we spun around about six times during the first song when the actual speed is supposed to take, it's supposed to go slowly and, you know, take, take, what? take, take it's time to, to go around. <laughs> and we were spinning like out of control. And I was just like, I don't think I, you know, what's what, you know, <laughs> nobody told me about this. Anyway, the whole thing was St. John's ambulance guys pulling fans out on, you know, through uh, off the stage to, to the back and everything. That was, that was probably one of the most memorable experiences it was also one of the sort of defining moments in our career we went from from being kind of a you know un, not unknown but you know a smaller band to being a band that could sure. sell out two nights at ontario place and be on the front page of the newspaper the next day and so that was one of my favorite moments that is a wonderful story and you can hear much more of my chat with ivan deroshuk from men without hats on episode 702 that's fairly recent i love that chat with him mm-hmm that's a wrap for this week. Famous Lost Words is created and produced by Tom Jokic. Executive producer Sarah Cummings. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Our theme music is by Rob Wells and Christopher Ward. You can hear all past episodes on the iHeartRadio app or any major podcast platform. But the most important thing you can do is tell your friends about the show. Let them know that we have classic interviews with some of their all-time favorite artists. Thanks for listening. Season 8 is coming soon. Season 8.